Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well. Because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before I introduce today's special guest. I'm happy to announce my first book is now in print. The title is Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again, Fixing the Root Cause of Your Fatigue with Natural Treatments. I've discovered 14 root causes of fatigue. I like to call them the fatigue factors. And in this book, I explain eight of the 14. I've had some amazing feedback on how easy it is to read and understand. It's not full of technical doctory language like most books written by doctors are. And of course, the book also includes my own personal fatigue story, along with four other stories from real fatigue cases from my private practice. It's available in paperback and Kindle forms. So if you'd like a copy, you can find it on Amazon or on my website, www.drcary.com. That's it for our housekeeping, so let's get started. I'm very excited about this week's show because we will be talking about treating breast cancer naturally. And just a quick note that this show is not only for women, men also get breast cancer. So tune in and listen because today my special guest is Sergi. Let me tell you a little bit about Sayer. He is a widely recognized researcher, author, and lecturer, an advisory board member of the National Health Federation, and the founder of the world, and the founder of the world's most widely referenced evidence-based natural health resource of its kind. He founded GreenMedInfo.com in 2008 in order to provide the world an open access, research-based resource supporting natural and integrative modalities. Sarah's work has been published in various online and print publications, including Truthout, The Wellbeing Journal, Mercola.com, and the Journal of Gluten Sensitivity. Since 2003, Sarah has served as a patient advocate and an educator and consultant for the natural products industry and health and wellness field. Sayer, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a great honor. I love what you're doing, and uh, yeah, I love talking on this topic, so it's uh, it's really great to be here. Sayer, you have been a really busy guy during the past year. I've seen you on so many different health summits. The Evolution of Medicine Summit, the Future of Nutrition, the Detox Summit. You have just been out there spreading the message about natural medicine. Yeah, it's been uh, just a really great honor because there's so much interest in what you would call evidence-based natural medicine. And, and that was exactly my intention in Trading Green Info was, you know, I had a lot of anecdotal experience um, as well as personal healing, healing experience with natural 
interventions. And I was shocked to find so much research out there and so little awareness of it. So for me, it was just a labor of love over years to put together the resource. And now it's a matter of just going out there and spreading the good word about it. And I've had a lot of help uh, by these summit hosts in doing that. So I'm very grateful. So you and I both know that there is a lot of research when it comes to natural medicine. And like you said, a lot of people and a lot of other doctors don't realize the scope of research that's really out there proving that what we do works. So today we really wanted to focus on breast cancer. It's a topic that I get asked about a lot in my private practice. So can you tell us what is some of the latest research about breast cancer? Oh gosh, I'm so happy to address this because this has been the most revolutionary change in in the literature itself that I've seen uh, since I started doing this work uh, a decade ago, which is just in 2013, a National Cancer Institute uh, uh, commissioned expert working review on cancer decided that we should reclassify uh, some of the most prevalent cancers that afflict women particularly ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, which is one of the primary, uh, quote, early cancers detected through x-ray mammography. In fact, it's really um, controversial to start with because in situ means non-moving, right, non-expanding. And cancer is like the zodiac sign, cancer. It's like a crab it expands. So it's sort of a contradiction right there, which is why some early on classified it as stage zero, meaning, you know, it's really not cancer. But because of the way in which we look at cancer as an ever-expanding sort of juggernaut of lethality that's, again, based on just some predetermined gene sequence being mutated, then everyone thinks, oh my gosh, you either have it or don't. If you do, find it early and cut it out or irradiate it out, and then, and then that's the best approach. But what this particular review found was that it should be classified as benign and an indolent growth of epithelial origin. And this is such a profound finding because just in the past 30 years, 1.3 million American women were diagnosed with this type of early stage cancer, and they were almost invariably, okay, I'd say 95% were treated with lumpectomy, mastectomy, chemotherapy, radiation, as if it were the same as aggressive invasive cancer. So this didn't really make it passed an initial blip uh, internationally through the mainstream media headlines, but no one seemed to really grasp the implications. And still today, because of the up to 17-year lag between the clinical published research, as you know, and clinical practice or the standard of care, no one is, is really seeming to raise uh, the awareness about it. So th- this, is, this is the primary research finding that I think everyone should know about, and that's mind-blowing in the implications. That's huge. So can you explain to our listeners the role that industry plays in breast cancer awareness? Mm. Yeah, this actually feeds directly into this finding because what's happened is that since 1985, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, with which I personally, before I started doing the research, thought was some kind of you know governmental, uh, public-oriented uh, awareness-raising uh, event, right? Every month uh, during October of the year, um, there's this huge push to get women to identify the uh, preventable uh, ways in which they can, you know, obviously not get breast cancer, which is the use mammography uh, and then find it early. And this was actually created by the company that profits from the two major oncology drugs for breast cancer still today. And that, that is a, a corporation today known as AstraZeneca. But at the time that this uh, 
uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month was founded in 1985, it was actually um, Imperial Chemical Industries, a corporation that produced chemicals, some of which were known carcinogens, and their pharmaceutical subsidiary, Zeneca, is, is technically the company that owned the patent for tamoxifen, which is behind Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So as you can see, this is, a, this is an industry that created a quote awareness month to pinkwash away from anyone's mind that there's such a thing as a cause for breast cancer, right? A carcinogen. Go on Breast Cancer Awareness Month's website, AstraZeneca, Susan G. Coleman, type in the word carcinogen, and guess what you will find? Absolutely nothing. That is proof that this whole brainwashing scheme is based on getting women to funnel themselves into uh, mammography screenings, which are inherently breast carcinogenic, okay, that's the major issue with the breast screenings is that if you even have the BCRA1 or 2 genes, guess what? They confer greater risk for radiation-induced damage in your breast leading to breast cancer. So any woman that's thinking about the breast cancer-related gene, about mammography, should at least be screened for it ahead of time, which again is a, a highly contentious issue because a corporation, uh, Myriad Genetics, once owned the right to screen for that gene and it was thousands of dollars to do it. They just lost a, a legal battle and now you, you do own the genes in your breast and you can have them looked at for less uh, money. But there's, so much, there's such a vicious web of interconnections and conflicts of interest that uh, hopefully that gave you a sense of really what's going on. I know for a lot of our listeners out there, their mouths are open and they're saying, oh my God. Um, but but is, it is true. There's a lot that we've been spoon fed that that uh, we shouldn't believe in. And that's why I really love that you're on today helping to spread this message and to cut through a lot of the confusion out there. So one of the questions that I often get is about mammography. You know, should, should I have a mammography? How often should I get mammography? Is it even safe? Should I get thermography? Can you dispel some of those uh, rumors yeah. and some of the confusion? Well, what the research shows clearly is that mammography, because what it's doing is basically a screening a asymptomatic population, meaning women who have no symptoms of breast cancer are told to do the screenings ahead of time to prevent it from emerging. And what's happened is that this, for the past um, at least quarter of a century, has resulted in a, an expansion of the detection of early breast cancers, but which has not led to a reduction in overall mortality from breast cancer, which leads us to believe, or almost proves, that they're not detecting actual cancer. Rather, they're detecting benign lesions, which again now is confirmed through the National Cancer Institute's uh, uh, commission study, benign lesions of epithelial origin that would never progress to cause harm in most of these women and certainly wouldn't cause death. And that is what the ultimate finding is. And that's called overdiagnosis. So mammography has led to scores of women being overdiagnosed. And because overdiagnosis that's not recognized is deadly because it leads to overtreatment, many of these women have been overtreated as well. Another euphemism for mistreated or abused by a system that actually preys on the ignorance of the women as well as their practitioners. So that's just part of it because the other half of it is that mammography relies on what are known as, sounds really good and euphemistic, low-dose radiation wavelengths, okay? They're known as um, 30 kilovolt kilo, uh, peakage wavelengths. 
versus higher dose ones like which are released in say exposure in Hiroshima to nuclear blasts which are in the 200 um, uh, kbp range now what's been found in numerous studies is that lower dose radiation wavelengths like used in mammography have between four to six times higher DNA damaging properties in breast cells than higher dose radiation so in other words the radiation being used to, to diagnose these cancers early in healthy breasts are planting the seeds of future breast cancer in these women. And we know that this is the primary concern with having the breast cancer susceptibility genes one and two, is if you have them, your body has a harder time repairing DNA damage that is caused by radiation. So again, it's just to me highly immoral and unethical for those promoting screening to not bring this to the awareness of the women who are actually undergoing it. So you just uh, you just rocked my world there, Sayer, with the uh, what do they call it? Low dose rate. Yeah, it's called low dose radiation, and so that's a euphemism, a misnomer for yes. the type of wavelengths that are used to ascertain lesions in mammographies. So you would. So we would naturally think low dose must be safer, but it's not. This is the primary concern in other areas of toxicology where low dose exposure to say petrochemicals, even in the parts per billion or trillion range, actually have higher endocrine disruptive properties. So we can no longer apply the rule that the more of something that you have, the more toxic, because in some cases the less um, intensity or less concentration can have greater harm. Okay, so now can you talk to us about thermography because I know, well, for me personally in my private practice, I get asked about thermography very often. Should women have thermography instead of mammography? What benefits does thermography does thermography even have? Can you yeah. answer any of these questions for us? Absolutely. The nice thing about thermography is it just base, basically measures a heat signature that comes off of the body which describes for you the metabolic conditions of the tissue. So in other words, if there is an area that is of concern and it's giving off more heat, that may reflect that there's something going on metabolically where it's flipped into what is known as aerobic uh, glycolysis, which is primarily what happens in cancer, right? Is that the cell, instead of using oxygen, which is more efficient to produce energy, actually ferments sugar and in, in response actually produces more heat. And so, and also that it might be sprouting off little blood supplies through angiogenesis. So thermography can actually detect some of these changes before they even reach the state of coming up as a mammography detected lesion. You know, often what happens with X-ray mammography is you're seeing calcified areas. Um, it's actually a form of calcium known as either hydroxyl appetite or oxalate, the former being considered more malignant. And at that point, you're already seeing tissue that's dead, that's being calcified, and it's already way late into the game. It's also not telling you whether that's a benign uh, calcium deposit or a malignant one. So in theory, thermography can detect much earlier some of the issues metabolically that can be altered almost overnight. If, for example, you deprive the body of excess uh, sugar by eliminating the consumption of grains and uh, obviously processed sugar, and then you're increasing the oxygenation of the body, uh, then that right there and then should put a halt into the, the, the metabolic changes associated with precancer or cancer in, in the breast. So let's kind of switch gears and talk about 
uh, the BRCA gene. I think a lot of women, and men too, are familiar with um, Angelina Jolie, and last year she had um, the mastectomies because she has a BRCA, the BRCA gene. Can you talk about that? Is breast cancer purely genetically based? <laughs> you know, that's such a great question because ultimately we can say now with certainty that absolutely it is not, and that's because there are only 20 to 25,000 protein coding genes in the human body which is crazy when you consider we have 100,000 proteins at the least that we need to account for. And so what that's basically led us to understand is that factors beyond the control of the genes, specifically the primary nucleotide sequences of the DNA, those 3 billion base pairs, are responsible for all of the proteins. And then certainly the behaviors that those proteins express, which relate infinitely more complexity, are not going to be contained in the primary sequence of the gene. So at the very least, to deconstruct the gene meme, which is the whole fatalism notion, yes, anyone who pays reference to BRCA being the primary determinant of breast cancer risk versus environmental effects of nutrition is actually ref reflecting a profound ignorance that's sort of this, the hallmark of our age. Now, there is what, there's so much research on this about how there are over 500 different quote, mutations um, or SNPs identified with the BRCA gene. And so several of them have actually conferred protective or inverse um, risk for breast cancer if you have it. So in other words, this notion that there's only one or two breast cancer susceptibility genes and that some of them actually are harmful or not harmful has not really been, been given any um, attention within the sort of lay press is certainly not within the medical community. And furthermore, the BRCA1 and 2 genes are primarily known to cause harm because, if, for example, if the gene is exposed to dioxin or low-dose radiation exposure, again, through something like mammography, it deactivates further this functional protein product, rendering it more likely that the DNA damage is going to take hold and therefore lead to breast cancer. So we have to limit exposures to chemicals or detoxify our body of those that have accumulated, obviously limit radiation exposures, which mammography is the first thing that I would consider not you know, gratuitously exposing a healthy breast to. So it's almost revealing to us how backwards everything is when it comes to our concept of prevention uh, within the conventional system. So basically what you're saying is, for our listeners out there, if uh, one of them finds out that they do happen to have a BRCA gene, they shouldn't just run out and schedule surgery. No, because everyone has a BRCA gene. They have BRCA gene 1, 2. It's just that there's so many different, um, quote, polymorphisms, okay? If 1% of a population has a specific form, then that's considered significant. But there's literally over 500 different possible mutations that have been identified. And again, mutations... Are, are sort of, that's a bad word. It should really just be considered a variation. And then some of those are adaptive, meaning if your body evolved in an environment where a particular nu nutrient was, was not present, or perhaps uh, certain types of chemical exposures were, then your body may have selected that particular gene in order to survive those conditions. Like instead of looking at it as sort of a death sentence, we might look at it as adaptive and, and so there's, and, and again, some of these polymorphisms have been identified to protect against breast cancer and breast cancer mortality. So, so again, anyone who presents the breast cancer gene unilaterally as if they know what they're talking about, it's just a profound misrepresentation. Okay, so 
let's switch gears again and let's talk about some of the primary causes and solutions for breast cancer. So let's talk about causes. So already you mentioned low-dose radiation. What are some of the other primary causes? Some of the primary causes include endocrine disruptors, and one of the primary ways in which we get those into our bodies is through the use of body care products that are petrochemically based, and that happens in two ways. First, direct application. So anything that you are putting on your body that contains parabens, for example, or mineral oil, you are guaranteed to have part, part of that get into the fat and stay there and actually have a hormone disruptive effect, usually estrogenic. Second is that one of the primary exposures to a carcinogenic or estrogenic uh, petrochemical is bisphenols, which include bisphenol A, S, F, and a whole alphabet now in things like thermal printer paper. But they found the primary way in which it gets into the body is through um, actual hand creams and lotions uh, acting as a, a way to accelerate the transference into the body. So. So again, looking at one's body care products and eliminating anything that you wouldn't actually want to eat, because consider, as you know, you eat something orally, it goes to your liver first, where you have an infinite number of steps possibly to detoxify it from your body um, before it gets into your blood versus applying it directly to your skin. That's, that's worse than eating it. Um, so that's a huge issue. And then, of course, the, the wider question is, what are the other chemicals, some of which are known to be heavy metals, um, which are have now been reclassified as metalloestrogens when we're looking at its endocrine role in breast and uh, female-related malignancies because low doses of cadmium and um, even some of the minerals you'll find in mass market supplements like sodium selenate and selenite, which is a form of selenium, actually act as an estrogenic molecule. You have non-organic foods containing residues of glyphosate, which has now been found in a particular study to have endocrine disruptive, estrogenic, and, and or carcinogenic effects in the parts per trillion range. It's a cell model, meaning, again, very, very low doses can have very profound effects on our endocrine system, especially when it comes to breast cancer uh, risk. So those are just a few things that I could mention uh, in a mouthful. So it sounds like, for the most part, that's pretty doable, you know, for our listeners out there to check all their body care products and check them for parabens mineral oil, a lot of that is just listed on the ingredients label mm -hmm. and, you know, throw out as much of your plastic as you can with for bisphenol A. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the glyphosate is the genetically modified foods. Absolutely. Um, in fact, um, there are a number of other issues here at play as well. Um, and of course, one of the focuses I like to have is on food as information. And if you're consuming your standard American diet of a grain-based diet, highly processed, with a lot of oxidized, adulterated fats, specifically in the vegetable oil class. They're going to have a lot of pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative properties. And when you're looking at that on a cellular level, it's going to result in genetic damage. And that's the primary mechanism, at least for 50 years, has been identified behind how we, we end up with cancer. So trying to saturate our body with plant matter that has not been heavily processed, that's rich in phytocompounds that we know are protective against breast cancer and activate the gene pathways associated with health, looking at things like catechin and green tea, resveratrol and, and things like grapes and red wine. Um, of course, curcumin out of turmeric is one of our favorites. A lot of these compounds are known as xenohormetic, and it's almost as if they represent an evolutionary codependency between plants and animals and how 
Uh, for many thousands and thousands of years, when a plant was stressed, it would produce certain compounds that an animal consuming it could benefit from because it would activate their longevity pathways and protect them from environmental stressors that they would also potentially suffer uh, with. So, you know, there's a lot that can be done, but really focusing mainly on diet as not just a, a source of, quote, vitamins and even antioxidants, but as gene regulatory information and that if we diverge suddenly from that diet and after thousands of years of consuming a certain amount of plant matter, uh, we just stop eating it or eat, eat conventionally grown with pesticides shot through, then we're just guaranteeing that our cells are going to break down and eventually cancer will emerge. So really the big take home is using your food to be your medicine. Yes, and even maybe better, which is that using your food so you don't ever have to eat. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah you know, that's true. Because sometimes we do that. We start taking pill concentrates of foods and thinking, oh, well, I, I ate badly at McDonald's or something, so now I'm going to eat an organic meal. And it really doesn't work that way. You do have to make a commitment to stay pretty regular on the path of um, whole food, organic foods. Can you mention any other solutions besides eating a whole foods healthy diet? Yeah, definitely. There's some real magic bullet superfoods that I like to talk about, one of which is flaxseed. And this is from the perspective of the evidence, because now we have actual meta-analyses looking at dozens of studies on flaxseed interventions before, let's say, um, a biopsy of a breast tumor, and found that it actually regresses the tumor to consume flax, which is ironic to many people because they think, oh, well, what's going on? Well, there are these phytoestrogens within flaxseed, and we've been identifying estrogens as carcinogenic for breast cancer now for decades because of the industries that have created drugs that target the estrogen uh, pathways in breast cells. So tamoxifen does this, Aramidex does this, and so we have this meme circulating, oh, estrogen causes breast cancer. It's not true without qualification. And so flaxseed has been found to selectively um, modulate the receptors in the breast tissue that downregulate unregulated proliferation. And I want to bring a quick point up to women is that because of the dumbing down of the discussion of breast cancer, when someone gets a biopsy back and was tested for receptor status and they find it's estrogen receptor positive, what do they think? They think, oh my God, then estrogen is what created my cancer. Well, technically, if it was an estrogen receptor negative, breast cell, like triple negative breast cells that don't have any of the three receptors, the prognosis would be much poorer because you can't use estrogen modulating therapies, natural or or chemical, to keep it from um, uh, proliferating. So again, people need to really look closer at what we're talking about when it comes to cancer. And yes, you can use phytoestrogens. Okay, soy is another one. It's one of the most abused of all superfoods. All the literature that I've indexed on soy for breast cancer indicates profound benefits. Now, if you were to try to administer tamoxifen and, and genistein, one of the compounds in soy together, you'll actually see it blocks the efficacy of tamoxifen, which tamoxifen is classified by the World Health Organization as a known carcinogen. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what I'm saying in general is, yes, flaxseed, soy, red clover, even coffee has compounds like genistein in it that can be used to prevent breast cancer um, when it's related to estrogen um, pathways. So getting back to the flaxseed, is the research on flaxseed as whole seeds, as flaxseed powder, on flaxseed oil, does it really matter? What's the best What's the Great. best way for us to eat our flaxseeds? Great question, because the oil itself has the omega-3 in a really good form, as long as it's nitrogen flush container, that's going to ho hopefully down-regulate some of the eicosanoids associated with unregulated inflammation, which is behind a good number of cancers, especially breast cancer. But 
the powder is going to have massive amounts of the lignans, which are the ones that are associated with uh, modulating estrogen in a beneficial way. So technically, you're getting hundreds of times more of the beneficial lignans um, in the flaxseed meal, and it's technically the bacteria in our gut that help down um, degrade those into these uh, enterolactone and pterodiol, which are the ones that are really beneficial for us. So both are good, but for breast cancer prevention, it's actually the meal which is the one that's been most confirmed to be anti-breast cancer. And then you mentioned soy, which I think a lot of people are very confused about soy. Uh, and so, yeah. the, so the take-home is soy is not terrible for you, and really you want it yes. GMO-free soy. Yes, soy is a medicine, and I wouldn't use it as a food without it being cultured. So there is a truth to how tofu or a lot of soy milk could be a problem, but keep in mind, some of the ways in which it causes problems is it causes pancreatic hypertrophy by blocking protease, but that's one of the ways you fight cancer, which cancer has a lot of protease activity. So everything that could cause harm in theory that's natural in one context is beneficial in another. So yes, do cultured soy or use it as a medicine. Don't overdo it, but please don't throw the soy baby out with the bathwater. Or the soy milk. Yeah. yeah. Sarah, you have been giving us so many key tips. So could you give us one more thing that we can do to protect ourselves from breast cancer or any other nutrients or healthy practices that we okay. can start doing today? Well, I would have to say two. Uh, one is please don't fall victim to overdiagnosis. After 10 years, there's a 50% chance, okay, 10 years of mammography, that you as a woman will be called back for a false positive breast cancer reading, which a recent study found after six months later, them knowing they didn't actually have cancer, they had in 12 psychosocial parameters the same adverse effects as someone who did get a positive cancer diagnosis, meaning the nocebo effect is so powerful that if you fall prey to the system and they tell you your breasts have cancer and they don't, um, you are, you are going to be harmed profoundly. So number two to me is turmeric. Use it in your food. If you need to, if you're in a more extenuated situation, get a supplement form that's less of an eye so you can get through the liver barrier and really get a physiological amount into your blood because turmeric really is probably the most promising single intervention that I know of to prevent breast cancer as well as all the other cancers bundled together. Sayer, I would just love to keep talking about this, but we are running low on time. So how can our listeners find out more about you? Well, thank you. Well, we have a daily newsletter and also weekly options. So that's for all the cutting edge research that we collate or the articles that we write on a daily basis um, are going to be delivered directly to the inbox. Other than that, they can just go to greenmaninfo.com or find us on Facebook and we're there to uh, hopefully support them. So can they register for your newsletter through Green Med? through greenmedinfo.com. <laughs> yes, in fact, if they go there, they'll get a pop-up giving them free access to my uh, article, The Dark Side of Wheat, which was um, our most popular. And so they get that free download if they sign up. And it's a free newsletter, so uh, no charge at all. Fantastic. So I'll make sure for our listeners that those links are in our podcast notes. Sayer, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for what you're doing for everybody. Thank you. All right. That wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Sayer G. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. 
You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carrie.